This must be some testimony, I think, to the guests that we have here this evening. So I'm going to be very short in my introduction. I'm Peter Sutherland. I'm chairman of LSE. And we're very pleased to have you here. And above all, we're very pleased that you're here because Boris Johnson is here. The event was rearranged after the murder of drummer Lee Rigby in Woolwich in May this year. And while acknowledging that dreadful event, we're very grateful that the mayor has agreed to come back here this evening and to honour what his commitment was to speak to LSE on an occasion in the future. As we all know, Boris Johnson is a man of great discretion, low profile, (laughs) and customary understatement. Who could possibly agree with the comment that I read in the Financial Times, surely an unfair comment, that, I quote, Boris has a talent for carefully calculated imprudence. However, we would all be delighted, I think, this evening to hear his customary candor on a number of topical issues. And as far as I am at least concerned, the more imprudence in those comments, the better. But as mayor, his role and responsibility and what he has done has been very considerable. He's promoted the Crossrail project, the modernization of the underground, He set up a commission to consider the needs of outer London. He's been engaged in overseas trade missions. He has been developing the image of London abroad in a very positive way. And few British politicians have have such prominence, and probably none are so immediately recognisable. So we very much look forward to listening to him this evening. I'm told that I have to say that for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Boris. Some of you may understand what that's all about. <laughs> As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put questions to Boris Johnson, uh, but he will deliver his lecture on the future of London within the United Kingdom, whether he adds to that and within the European Union or not, I do not know. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Well, thank you very, very much, Peter, for that very, very generous introduction. I'm going to stick absolutely ruthless, as, the, as I always do, to the, to the rubric uh, before me. Thank you very much, everybody, for inviting me tonight to this famous institution. Uh, where time and again throughout the history of the, of the LSE, the academic and indeed the student body has stood up against tyranny and in favour of democracy. And you spoke movingly just now, Peter, about the relation between the LSE and the great continent of Africa. So it's, it's grand that we can meet tonight in what I'm sure is called the Muammar al-Gaddafi Memorial Auditorium. <laughs> and I congratulate you. I congratulate you on your, on your, I congratulate you on your, on your far-seeing fundraising uh, ventures. And I was thinking how lucky LSE students are in, in, their, in, their, in, their, in their leaders, uh, Tony Travers, uh, who's, who's invited me, and of course uh, in their teachers and 
in your location. You don't know this, folks. I'm going to tell you the most important and interesting thing about the LSE. You are blessed. We are blessed. Because here at Aldwych is about to be uh, constructed. You are about to go through the most beautiful revolution in urban realm since the 8th century. When the Saxons, as you will remember, moved the city from the Roman ruins to this area, to Old Witch. Why they called it Old Witch uh, or London Wick, as, as, it was, as it was called. And I don't know whether you've seen the news, but we have agreed just south of here to build a garden bridge. How about that? From one end of the a garden bridge. From one, from, from, uh, from virtually from here, more or less, I mean, just you know, a couple of, a couple of, uh, a couple of hundred paces, uh, across the river, roughly speaking to LWT on the, on the south bank, a bridge with no purpose other than to recreate the soul, uh, with bosky nooks and bowery corners, such as Kublai Khan might have called into being in Xanadu, where the students of LSE, where you all, uh, would be able to go off for crafty fags and romantic assignations to read, to read, well absolutely, it's going to be a fantastic amenity for this university, to read your, your Schumpeter or indeed your Marx or uh, whatever floats your boat as, as the sun goes down on the Thames. And the most wonderful, amazing thing of all about this great scheme is that we have just got the Treasury to agree. And Danny Alexander, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, is going to stump up, even though he is not only a Liberal Democrat, but also <laughs> the MP for Inverness. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the MP for Inverness, and he didn't hesitate uh, to wield his gigantic checkbook in favour of the Garden Bridge because he knows that bridge will not only be good for London, but good for Inverness. <laughs> a fantastic investment uh, for the people of Inverness. And he's right, ladies and gentlemen, because I want tonight to tackle, uh, I want to tackle one of the great myths and one of the most uh, pernicious myths of our time, namely, that London is somehow drifting apart from the rest of the country as if it were some lunar module about to detach itself while the, uh, the booster doodars slump back to Earth. Two reasons. A, because I simply don't think that that is what is happening, and B, because I think it would be a disaster if it did. I disagree both with those kind of non-Londoners who seem to disapprove of London in some way, as though it were a modern Babylon, uh, a louche, an alien culture. And I disagree also with those who actively, uh, proud Londoners, who actively want to hive London off and create a new uh, city-state, a Florence as it were, on the Thames. And I disagree, because London is the capital, isn't it, of England, of Britain, of the United Kingdom, of Europe, as I shall go on to prove, and <laughs> it is, Peter, and it is profoundly in the interests, it is profoundly in the interests of, uh, of all those political entities that it should remain so. Because the destiny of London and the destiny of Britain are woven inextricably together and the bonds, the coils, the weave is actually getting tighter, more dense uh, the whole time. Never in history has London contributed so much to the UK economy, did you know this? Up now to 21.9% of GVA from London uh, going to the rest of the UK economy, more than it was in 1911 when this was the, the workshop and manufacturing centre of the world. Never has London offered so much to the uh, more than half its population who were born outside 
this city, many of them, not just abroad, abroad but of course many of them from the rest of the UK, the Dick Whittingtons, have come to seek their fortune here. I'm talking about 800,000 Scots, including obviously Andrew Neil and, and many, many others. Never, never has the great flywheel of the London service economy been so crucial for turning the wheels of the rest of, of the UK. And you may sometimes have heard me already talk about the beautiful new London bus, which I saw outside in Aldwych, uh, looking splendid, and how it has seat fabric from Huddersfield and windows from Runcorn and destination lines from Manchester and bodywork and chassis assembled all over the country, from Falkirk to Guildford to Scarborough to Leeds to Rotherham to Blackburn. And you may also have heard me explain how London Transport, TfL, the, the body I chair, pumps out billions a year to thousands of SMEs around the country, sustaining companies, very often family companies, and livelihoods by taking in to London, sucking in underground escalator chains from Dudley, jumbo lubers from Liverpool, the yolong-haired luber from Liverpool, as a song once went, lift cables from Chester, the street where they have the oldest cable manufacturer in the world, thought once to have been responsible for making Vince Cable himself. And I don't think, I don't think people realise, I don't think people realise that when a new office development arrives in London, 65% of the economic benefit from construction, insurance, maintenance, or whatever, 65% of the benefit of these colossal developments that you see around our city are, is actually felt outside London. And I don't think people, when they make this argument about detaching London from the rest of the country understand how London serves as a global magnet for economic activity that benefits the whole UK. There would simply be no financial services industry in Edinburgh if London did not be the world in financial services. I hope that doesn't sound like a, a Lundo chauvinistic thing to say, but it happens to be to be true. There would be no insurance business in, in Norwich. Uh, there would be, uh, as, I've, as I've said many times before, J.P. Morgan is the biggest single employer in guess which county? In the West Country? Dorset, Dorset correct. JP Morgan, then they would be, there would be no JP Morgan bankers in Dorset if there were not colossal numbers of affluent JP Morgan bankers in London. London is like a gigantic undersea salenterate, I think is the word I'm looking for, uh, that sucks in, uh, sucks in talent from around the world. We have students coming from around the world, I'm delighted to say. We have four of the world's top 40 universities here in London, including, of course, this one in which we now sit. Where are you in the top four? For number one, right? I don't think there's going to be a dissent from that proposition uh, tonight. It's London that brings in the tourists. 63%, 63% of all visitors to the UK go first to London uh, rather than anywhere else. In contrast, other European destinations, Italy, for instance, only 13% of visitors going to Italy bother with the capital of France. Only 26% bother with going to Paris. And... It's London's seething mix of cultural and economic activity is then spread across the country. Or whatever an undersea salenterate does when it... um, What what does an undersea salenterate do? It respires, doesn't it? It sucks in and then it... What's the word I want for for the opposite of the sucking in process of the undersea (laughs) salenterate? What's that? Osmotic. Well, no, I don't think it's quite osmotic, is it? (laughs) 
I think it, it, the, London, it's, a, it's a two-way thing. And London, London gently expels, I think is the word I want, expels, expels uh, talent, economic activity, dynamism around the country. And I'm thinking of great cultural brands like the Tate, going to St. Ives and Liverpool, or the V&A, going to Dundee, commercial brands, Selfridges, popping up in Manchester and Birmingham, Harvey Nichols in Leeds, Edinburgh, Birmingham, Manchester, and Bristol. And I, I don't for a minute deny that when the, when the undersea celenterate ingests things, it ingests wonderful things from the rest of the country, clearly. Um, you know, back in the... It always has done, and huge, as I said earlier on. Talent comes from around Britain. The greatest, the greatest band in the, in the 20th century, greatest band of our times, probably came from... Liverpool, yes, come on. Liverpool. Is anybody seriously going to disagree with that? But in the end, where did they record their stuff? They recorded it at Abbey Road. I'm not going to be have to sent to, sent to Liverpool to apologise for mentioning this fact. But they, 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 recorded their, they recorded their songs at Abbey Road in London. In the end, it was London that helped propel and project them around the world. And that is truer today. That role of London in projecting the British economy is truer than it has ever been. And I conclude from this that the secret of the national success of Britain is not to engage in some mad process of decapitation, of separating the greatest city on earth from the rest of the country. The secret is to strengthen London as the gateway to Britain, and that is indeed what we have been trying to do. And Peter uh, kindly alluded to some of the things that we have done. We are at the moment seeing phenomenal investment coming to London in the last a uh, few, uh, few months, and just since the Olympic Games, we've seen colossal sums of money invested by uh, the Chinese, the Royal Albert Docks, so they're bringing about six billion quid uh, to create a third financial district for London, about 1.6 billion pounds coming from Malaysia to uh, the Battersea Power Station, that crumbling old relic fit for nothing except the cover of a, a Pink Floyd album, now going to be transformed into thousands of, of homes, uh, jobs, uh, restaurants, heaven knows, heaven knows what. Croydon, who's here from Croydon? <laughs> Let's hear it for Croydon. Woo! Powerhouse, wonderful place. Powerhouse of the, of the South London economy, now at last going to be regenerated thanks to uh, about a £1.2 billion investment coming from Westfield and Hammersons, the two uh, uh, shopping giants coming together to form uh, Westfield and Hammersons, forming a conglomerate which they, they resist the name West Ham. But they are, they are going to uh, they're going to transform Croydon. And so again, we are, we're, going to, we're going to rebuild the Crystal Palace, uh, quite thanks to an investment from China. Kuwait alone now has investments in this city of the order of £120 billion. Pounds. And uh, everywhere I go, I find people wanting to, uh, to get uh, involved in, in activity here in London. You, you may wonder why we're being so successful and what it is about London that attracts these international investors and why it is that I'm the mayor of the sixth biggest French city on earth, as I'm proud to be, or why I'm the mayor of the 12th biggest Australian city, the 20th biggest Russian city, or as uh, someone said to me when I was in the Gulf, I'm the mayor of the 8th Emirate, he he proudly turned. I don't know whether that's... It's a, obviously a, a badge I carry with, with pride. Uh, why is it that people want to come here? And I think if you look at what's been happening over the last few years in London, it's really pretty exciting. 
Crime, which matters a great deal to people deciding where to invest, is down over the last uh, five and a half years, to pick a period entirely at random, uh, by about by, by 11 or 12 percent. The murder rate is down to levels not seen since uh, the 1960s. We are so ruthless in enforcing uh, the rule of law here in, in London that we lock up our MPs for trying to pass their speeding points to their wives. And uh, absolutely right. Absolutely. It sends a very powerful signal around the world. And uh, we are so punctilious in patrolling the city with complete impartiality towards every community that we recently arrested the Duke of, Lork for lo Duke of York for loitering in the shrubberies of Buckingham Palace. And that... <laughs> That sort of thing goes down very big around the world. They think these guys are serious. They take the rule of law serious. I, I, I won't be subject to arbitrary arrest. And uh, that's why they're investing. That's why we're able to get schemes off the ground that would otherwise be stalled, like Battersea that's been, as I say, mouldering away for 30 or 40 or, or, or 50 years. And we need to get on with it. And we need, obviously, to do more and to do it faster. Because one... Uh, feature of this city today, well, perhaps one of the most important statistics I want to leave with you uh, tonight, is that uh, we are seeing a, a massive population boom. And no thanks to me, since I've been mayor, the, the population of London has gone up by 600,000, according to some, uh, some censuses. And uh, that puts very considerable pressure on our infrastructure, on our uh, on our housing supply, everybody knows the, 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 the critical problem we now have with shortage of homes in London. We need to build 400,000 new homes over the next 10 years. We have to get young people the homes that they need. Now, we can only do this if we, uh, if we get investment, if we make sure that we have security uh, of supply. And uh, I'm delighted to say that uh, we have so far built more than... Uh, a record number of affordable homes in London over the last few years, but we've got a lot further to go. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so devoted to what uh, Tony Travers had to say recently about security of funding in London. We need to know that we are going to get the funding we need to do these great projects. And he, uh, he said, as I'm sure you know, that we should devolve, because you're all students of Tony's, aren't you? Well, okay, well, Tony, Professor Tony Travers did a brilliant report called the Independent Finance Commission for London, which proposed that the suite of five property taxes should be devolved to London and indeed to all other cities in, in England. Now, who knows what the suite of five property taxes is? Apart from Tony. <laughs> they are council tax, stamp duty land tax, business rates, Uh, the annual tax on enveloped dwellings, and which have I left out? Have I said capital gains tax? Capital gains tax. Those are the, those are the five. And the project, which is fiscally neutral, is to hypothecate the value of those tax receipts and give it to the authority in London, give it to the boroughs, give it to uh, the GLA, and give us the certainty that we will be able to invest in the infrastructure, in the housing that we need. Because believe me, we are with a growing population. We're going to have 9 million by 2020. We're going to have 10 million by 2030. We are going to need not just hundreds of thousands more homes. We're going to need new river crossings. We're going to need Crossrail 2. We are going to need massively to invest 
in this city. And we can only do it, we could, or rather we can do it much more easily if we have that certainty. And I passionately support what Tony has said, and I hope very much that all you will join me at the barricades. Join me at the barricades. What's our cry? What do we want? The suite of five property taxes devolved to London. <laughs> what are they? We're not entirely sure. <laughs> when do we want it? Now. That's our, that's our, that's our, that's our slogan. And remember, if the, if, the Treasury, if the Treasury complain, remind them that it is fiscally neutral. And what it would do is give local politicians an incentive to, to go for policies that will generate jobs, generate growth, and that will be economically sensible and prudent. It is a very, very good idea for this country. And it, by the way, it helps us to answer the question, what do the English or what do the great cities of England get out of devolution? Hmm? Which is the, the, the question, one of the questions that I think has been posed in this series of lectures. And the answer is not very much so far, is it? And I think it would be a, it's a small step it's not a, a, a giant leap forward for local uh, de fiscal democracy in England, but it would be something. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't begin to match what the, the Scots and the Welsh yet have, but it would be something. And I think it would be wholly right to do. And the last thing that we should think of doing, and I will, I will more or less conclude on this point, the last thing that we should think of doing is breaking up, devolve this fiscal authority to the cities of England, but do not break up the union between England and Scotland that helps make up Britain and has made us one of the most successful political constructions of all time. Because we would lose an identity being British that is of huge value to people like my immediate antecedents, for instance, who come here and who find it hard to think of themselves immediately as English, but you find Britain and British a very, very wonderful and convenient identity to adopt. We lose that, and we lose our brand as a country. I was in Kuwait the other day, as, as Peter was, I, I go around uh, as I, drumming up interest in, in London. I was in Kuwait, and I saw this incredible shopping mall where there was a, a shopper buying underpants, made in, guess where? Huh? Yes, Britain. <laughs> made in Devon, which is apparently an underpants city. Apparently Devon is, uh, uh, is, 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 is an absolutely fantastic place to make underpants these days, only some tax break, tax break I'd never heard of. Uh, but why? Why was that, that shopper, why was she in her, in, her, in her kit, why was she going into... A, a shop in the middle of, of Kuwait to buy underpants made in Devon because the shop had a red, white and blue flag and bunting all over it. It had guardsmen in busbies at the door, looking a bit forlorn actually, uh, but they were, they, they, their message was Britain. And what will those people think? What will those shoppers in Kuwait think if the union flag is red and white and green, as it will be once you abstract the blue of the St Andrews? Am I not right? What will they think? Uh, what will, and indeed, what will we call ourselves if you, if, you t if you lop off the top of Britain? And because we, we can no longer properly call ourselves British, we, we, we'd, have to, we'd have to say that we, 
were rather like the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Uh, we, were, we were the rest of the UK or something. Uh, we, we, we were our, our UK, or, or perhaps we were the, the former UK, or, or, or FUK. And uh, you know, my, my question is, what the, what, the, what the former UK, what the former UK do we think we are doing? <laughs> we, are, we are stronger, if I can put it as, as, as delicately as that, we are stronger, we are stronger together. And, by the way, I believe we have a great future together. This is a quite extraordinary city which is at the crossroads of the, the world economy, thanks to the native wit and ingenuity of Londoners. We don't have any gold or zinc or aluminium or indeed any bismuth or beryllium or tantalum or any other non-ferrous metal, as far as I know, in London. But we have in London the biggest metal exchange in the world, don't we? thanks to our ingenuity and our, our, our ruthless metal trading abilities. We don't grow much wine in London, more's the pity, though we do have a vineyard, I think, about to start up in Enfield making champagne. But we do have the entire market for Bordeaux futures, which we've brilliantly snaffled off the French. Uh, we, we, we continue, in spite of our economic difficulties, we continue to export the most stunning things from London. We export bikes made in uh, Chiswick all the way to uh, to Holland. We export TV antennas made in Wandsworth to Korea. We export growing quantities of uh, a very dense kind of chocolate cake uh, made in, in Waltham Forest to, to France. Uh, let them eat cake made in uh, Walthamstow, as I always tell uh, the French. Uh, we, have exported, we have exported Piers Morgan to America, which is a signal, <laughs> a signal achievement. And I predict that by the middle of this century... I'm going, to make some, I'm going to make some concluding predictions about the incredible developments that you're going to see in the city. By the middle of this century, uh, London uh, will have, as I say, about 10, 11 million people, probably about 11 million people, and it will have established itself as the unchallenged capital, uh, not just of England, not just of Britain, not just of the United Kingdom, but, believe me, of Europe. Uh, and uh, we will have by then, by 2050, we will have a population of 72 million. We will overtake Germany in the following decade, uh, not just in numbers, but probably also in economic output as well. And I will go further. We will have, or you will have, because I may be, well, I'll, be, no, I'll still be very hale and hearty in 2050, I can tell you. <laughs> we will have a monarchy. We will have a union between England and Scotland. And many, many things will be the same. We will have a government still trying to build a third runway at Heathrow, while the rest of us have gone on to, uh, to do better schemes. I predict that Mr. Julian Assange will still be holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy, wasting police time and resources, and the LSE, the London School of Economics, will have lengthened its lead as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, higher education institution in the world, and people will continue to come to Britain to have a cosy tea in a Welsh pub and enjoy a traditional night out in Newcastle, as you do, or romp with a shaggy Highland cow, or whatever you get up to uh, with a Highland cow. Uh, but, but, and this is the critical point to which I return, but they will come, but insofar as that is their ambition, they will come to London first just to see the beautiful Garden Bridge. And that is why I... And that is why we need London as the world capital, the world capital of finance, of culture, of law, of the arts, of live music, of tech, of fintech, of nanotech, of biotech, edtech, tech, 
<laughs> I mentioned tech already. But above all, above all, we will need London as the capital of Britain. Thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. I think, we covered, I think we more or less covered the waterfront there. But, uh, sorry, Peter. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> if there are any questions, I'll, I'll be delighted to have a go at, at answering them. Since this is about my 15th speech of today. <laughs> Forgive me oh. if I get ragged. But, yes. I'm oh, sorry, Peter. No, no. <laughs> this gentleman here in the third row. We got, we've roving microphones somewhere. Where are they? They've vanished. Of all days. Where are the microphones? Here they are. We take three questions, one after the other, and then we'll speech again. Um, You talk about expanding London and uh, needing to build more affordable housing, but affordable is shorthand for subsidised. Who's going to pay this subsidy? Will it be our children and grandchildren? Well, uh, in, in many cases, obviously, it's the, it's the developers who uh, are able to offset the, uh, the deduction by the, the revenues they get from the, what they call the, the market housing. So the, the, there's that aspect of it. I'm afraid, yes, there is a taxpayer element to it, but I believe it's absolutely economically indispensable to get on and build more, more homes for others. It is, it's now, the CBI will tell you, it's the single biggest worry, the single biggest cause of economic inefficiency in our city is the uh, difficulty that our workforce has in living near uh, con- uh, a place convenient to their place of work. And uh, the, the, the worse that gets, uh, the bigger the, uh, the, the inefficiencies uh, that will be introduced and um, the costs are rising the, the whole time Every, everybody I mean, I'd just be interested uh, to know how many people here are actually in the lucky position of having any kind of equity how many have, have equity in your property how many have a stake in the in the in the value of your property who's actually got that's extraordinarily high number actually I was, that's fantastic. Well, good, good. Well, that's why you're very brilliant LSE students, and, you're, and, and, and you, it's the smart thing to try to do. Most people are trapped in uh, paying very, very high rents uh, without actually seeing any of, the, any of the upside that comes with the, uh, the uh, ever-rising London property market. We have got to help more people onto the property ladder, particularly by part-by-part rent schemes. And yes, they require subsidy, but in the long term, they are massively beneficial uh, for the economy of this city. And by the way, new homes in Britain, new homes in, in London, will drive the rest of Britain, the rest of the British economy. I think I, I, think, I, think I mentioned earlier the, the 63% of value from a, an office development that goes uh, to the rest of the country. That is also true of domestic housing in the sense that all those window frames, all those bath fittings, all, that, all those bricks, they come from outside London by and large. They come from the Midlands. They're massively beneficial in getting uh, the economy going. So uh, I, I think it's a very, very prudent and sensible investment for society. This person here in the front, fourth row. 
Hello, thank you. At the beginning, you uh, mentioned standing up for democracy. I'd like to get a reaction then on um, what's happened at Yulu, where they banned student protesting till June. And will you set up an inquiry into the um, University of London Union, which okay. is getting shut down at the end of the year? Students were protesting against it. And will you set up an, an inquiry into the treatment of students that, for, by the police last week? Right. Um. You're going to have to forgive me. I'm not uh, as familiar as I should be with what happened to students last week at, 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 at Yulu. What, what happened? What, what did the police do? Sorry, just... 39, just... 39 students were arrested and there was perceived rough treatment of students right. taking them out of the building. It was a okay. combination of the management and police work at Senate House. Well, look, on, on that point, I will certainly take it up because that's my, my job as, as, as chairman of the, of the Mayor's Office of Police and Crime, and I, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will look at that. And I will, uh, if, if I may, I will, I will write to you about uh, what I am told. We will make inquiries about the rough treatment. Um, on the democracy thing, again, I'm afraid I'm just unsighted as to what the dispute is about. And, and I'm in favour of free speech. What did you want to say? Say it now. What was it? Is, it, is, it, is it printable? Why? <laughs> well, if we can convey this, I, I, if you can convey this to the people who are making this decision, that would be most helpful. Okay. Well, I, listen, I, 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 I don't want to seem unnecessarily demagogic here, uh, but I don't know. My general instinct is that, is that student uh, unions are very good things, and um, since I used to try to campaign to get elected and those sorts of things myself, I, I, I love them and I support them. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the what, what's the beef with the student union? Anybody? <laughs> Peter, what, do we know what the story is? No, we don't. We don't know what the story is. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to stick up for democracy if we possibly can. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. We'll find out. Tony, you're looking anxious here. I don't know, I don't know, what, I don't know what it's all about. We're gonna, we're, I, I undertake to, to make inquiries on your behalf of a general nature. I can't, I don't think, institute a formal inquiry. I don't have any locus in, in the matter. I'm not, I'm not responsible for education, but I am responsible for policing. I'll, I'll have a look at, uh, at the other matter you raised. Let's have okay. somebody on this side. Over here. The lady here, third in. As an international student, I'm sort of concerned about um, immigration policy that's been recognized recently, especially in Parliament. So what are your views on immigration? I mean, international students and international citizens obviously have a large impact in London. They do, and a, and a beneficial impact too. And uh, as, as, I, as I said the other day, I think I'm probably the only politician in this country who's willing to, have a, uh, to say a good word about immigration. And I do, I mean, not just because uh, I had a, a Turkish great-grandfather who fled uh, Turkey, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he fled, all, he fled all sorts of places by the end. But he, 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 he came to Wimbledon, he, he then went back to Turkey and, and, and came a terrific cropper. But um, uh, if, he hadn't, if he hadn't come... To, to, to London, obviously I, I wouldn't be here, that's axiomatic um, and I think he'd have been he, you know, he, he came here because London stood in his mind as a place that uh, was a haven that stood for freedom, that stood for democracy the rule of law, uh, that would protect people like him and it did um, and I think we benefit hugely from uh, talented people coming to our city, I think we benefit massively from brilliant students coming to London and I have campaigned 
tire, I mean pretty tirelessly, uh, I mean, I'm feeling pretty exhausted tonight, but I campaigned tirelessly for uh, student visas. Uh, and it's absolute economic nonsense to try to exclude from our economy people who have so much to contribute, not least to the higher education budgets that uh, we deploy. I mean, you know, I, I, not, not to put too fine a point on it, it is the fees of the international students that are heavily cross-subsidizing uh, the, the rest of the uh, university cohort. I'd be blunt about things like that. Uh, and that is a good thing. That is a fantastic thing. We should encourage it and we should support it. Of course, you don't want people overstaying and being and, and bogus students and all the rest of it. You've got to crack down on whatever rackets there are and you've got to, you've got to stop people uh, coming here and, and, and milking the system or, or, doing, or, or, or misbehaving in any other way. But uh, we won't succeed as a country if we simply have a... Uh, bring down the, the shutters on, on him. I mean, we've succeeded. What we've done in the last uh, couple of years is we've brilliantly had a 60% reduction in the number of New Zealanders uh, coming, to, uh, coming to, to, to Britain. I mean, fantastic. I don't, I don't see who that uh, helps. Particularly, I want, to see, I want to see a more progressive, a more, uh, uh, more dynamic approach, and I've, I've made this point many times, but, but, but to be fair to Dave and to be fair to the, uh, to the government, I do think they get that. I do think that the Prime Minister gets that. I think he, I think, you know, he, he, he is getting this, in, he's getting this time and again when he goes abroad. He would have had the message in, in China. Uh, people uh, want, uh, talented people who have much to contribute, want to be able to come uh, without too much hassle. We should make it possible, whilst obviously keeping out uh, people who simply want to, to leech off benefits or all the rest of it. So there you go. That's my goal. Go on. How are we going to do this? Gentleman over here on the left. What, if anything, could be done to correct the left-wing bias of the BBC? I think, that, I think I, you know, I, I, the tragic answer is I don't think there is anything that can be done. It is, it is gigantic inoperable problem and uh, I, all you can do is live with it. You've just got to manage it and I, I, sometimes I go absolutely round the bend but it's no, there's no point complaining. What can you expect in a, a system, a corporation that has about 8,000 taxpayer funded journalists? They are not going to, on the whole, they are not going to be instinctively wedded to a free enterprise, open market, uh, low tax kind of view of the world uh, when they depend, their, their jaws are clamped very firmly about the hind teat of the state. Uh, that, is, that is just, just reality. I and mean, that's in no disrespect to many, many wonderful and talented people at the BBC. This is a problem that cannot be solved. It is a, because the, the trouble is, every time I think we've got to write, I, we, my policy should be to, to ban the BBC, to scrap it. It's a wonderful institution. That's an awful thing. It's a wonderful institution. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a, a great British brand. One of the many, one of, them, of course, it is, it is itself threatened by devolution since it is not at all clear that it will be British anymore uh, if, 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 or, or threatened by, by Scottish independence. So I, don't know how, I don't know how they're going to sort that one out. The, the, it'll be the, 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 the former UK uh, broadcasting uh, <coughs> corporation is what it will have to be. Yes, this gentleman here. His hand up, yep. So, right, um, can London survive as a world-leading capital outside the EU? Uh, yes, is the answer to that. Uh, yes, I think it can, absolutely. Uh, is that the optimum scenario? Uh, should we seek uh, a new future? Um, well, I think we should go for... I mean, my, my policy on, on cake, as you know, is pro-having it and pro-eating it. 
Uh, I think if, if, we can, if we can get a better deal out of Brussels, if we can get uh, uh, a substantial reduction in some of the non-wage costs that are imposed by the European Union, I think that would be a, a great thing, not just, by the way, for uh, this country, but for the whole of Europe. And I bet Peter would agree with this, because he has spent many years in Brussels and served with great distinction as competition commissioner and did some very hair-raising uh, deals and decisions he took uh, then, I seem to remember, blocking the French when they wanted to, or you know, insisting on various takeovers going ahead or when, they, when the French didn't want it or, or vice versa. I can't remember what you what you to But he, he, was, he was a great free marketeer. Peter, it's absolutely true. He was a, Peter Sutherland. I'm not. I'm not wrong. Peter Sutherland was a great free marketeer and still is a great free marketeer. Uh, and there is an appetite. There is an appetite in in Europe for someone to step up to the plate and say that the old model that's been going on for 30 or 40 years needs reform. And you don't need so much of this stuff coming down the pipe from Brussels. You don't need to be told uh, by e- the EU that you've got to set a uh, you know, that you can't set a cap on uh, compensation in industrial tribunals, for instance, which is one of the problems we've got in our, in our employment law at the moment. Why, do you need, why does that need to be set at a European level? Why do, why do we have uh, a common agricultural policy still that is actually still uh, so inimical to the interests of many in the third world? Why do we have a common fisheries policy at all? Uh, there, there are many, many reforms that you could introduce. That would be greatly to the benefit, uh, not just of this country, but of the whole EU. There is a, a massive appetite for it. I think David Cameron is ideally placed to lead that campaign, lead that renegotiation, and get a better deal. And in those circumstances, if we were presented with the option of remaining in the Internal Market Council, able to call the shots in some of those important uh, decision. Still able to deploy our, 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 our vote, uh, whatever it's worth nowadays, greatly uh, diminished proportionally, but still important. If we were still there, still, still had our crep, whittled down, but still there, still able to lobby for, uh, for Britain, then I think, and we uh, conceived of ourselves as uh, having a, a, a much bigger and, more and wider interest in the rest of the world, then I think that would be a great future for this country. The future for Britain is to be at the centre of the concentric, of the, of the intersecting circles, if you like, the intersecting set in the Venn diagram of, of the world. And that is the, the way we should think of ourselves. And Europe, this is why I gave my initial answer, there's a perfectly good future for this country outside. The EU, as a proportion of global GDP, has gone down uh, just since 1989, from about 30% of global GDP to about 19% of GDP today. And even though the, the EU as a whole has got much bigger, the big markets, the opportunities, are around the world. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why we need to equip ourselves forthwith, as our European rivals are doing, with a proper, competitive, 24-hour, four-runway hub airport that will allow us, that will allow us to communicate properly uh, with these growth markets around the world. And we'll stop Schiphol and Paris and Charles de Gaulle effectively eating our lunch uh, by taking uh, the business that is going there. And uh, that, that should be our approach. It should be internationalist. It should be firmly, firmly internationalist. It should be pro-American. It should be pro-European. But uh, whether... Uh, whether we need to remain in the EU or not has become less critical, less decisive about our national identity 
uh, in my lifetime. There's no doubt about that. I'm tempted to say that some of the banks don't agree with you, I don't think. I mean, there is a bit of a worry in some quarters if, if uh, Britain were to leave the European Union. And I heard what Goldman Sachs had to say the other day. Peter, of course, represents Goldman Sachs, amongst other things. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, 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 not, not to be confused with the vampire squid permanently wrapped around the face of humanity. Whatever. Uh. <laughs> it's blood funnel uh, <laughs> seeking money. Uh, where, uh, I saw, what, I saw what Goldman's had to say about that, and um, you know, it's a, that is unquestionably true. I mean, you're, you're, it's a serious point, because I think the, the, the biggest risk is the uncertainty, and the biggest risk is the, is the feeling in the market, the feeling among the sentiment amongst foreign investors that a critical decision is being taken, the implications of which are not fully understood and could be bad for their investments. There's no question at all that that is the that is the risk. I think it's more to do with sentiment than, than reality. I think there could, be, uh, there could be, as I say, a viable future outside. It's outside the, it is not the one I, I prefer. If it's clear from what I'm saying, it's not the one I prefer. I would prefer to remain within the single market uh, to be at the heart of the global economy, to look to the wider world and to have our cake and eat it. That is my, that is my preferred approach. Next question, I mean, if somebody further up on the left... <clears throat> yeah, any, of the, any one of those. <laughs> do you believe we should renationalise the railways? Renationalise? Yeah. Well, do you know, it's a, a, a fascinating thing. Winston Churchill, funny enough, always used to be in favour of, 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 of nationalising the railways. Uh, I don't know why I mentioned that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he wasn't much of a traveller by train. He, in fact, he never, ever went on the London Underground. Isn't that disgraceful? Or he, no, he did once. Winston Churchill went once on the London Underground and, and had to be helped to understand how to, how to use it. Uh, I, look, I, I think the... Uh, I, I speak with the... Um, as somebody, probably the only Tory politician in the last 50 years to, uh, to bring a substantial railway network back into the public sector, uh, which is what I did when I uh, broke up the PPP, as some of you may remember, um, or possibly not, by the blank looks on your faces. Uh, uh, and that, that was the right thing to do. I, th- I think it's a, it, is a, it is a difficult question. I think the, the difficulty we had with the PPP was that we had a load of private sector contractors who just didn't have to take the interests of Londoners into account as they got on with upgrading and modernising the tube. And in the end, it became intolerable. And we had to, we had to take it back. Uh, we had to organise it ourselves. Now, in the case of the, uh, of, of the, other, of the, of the, of the talks, um, perhaps what I can say is uh, on, in London, for which I'm responsible, uh, what I would like to see is the railway franchises, uh, the suburban railway franchises, um, how should I put this, shared. Responsibility for setting the railway franchises should be shared with TfL. And where are you? I think, I think, it, I think that would be a good thing for commuters and uh, for London, uh, whether it, you actually have to 
renationalize IDAD. I mean, there are advantages in having a privatized system. You're able to uh, raise considerable sums on the markets. You're able to use uh, private sector disciplines to bring costs down. There are considerable advantages. I wouldn't want, I don't think, to do that wholesale. I certainly, what I would want to do is to have the, uh, the rail franchises in London brought more within the general ambit of transport for London. I think that would be a great thing for consumers and for uh, a great thing for passengers. And, uh, we, we're going to get the West Anglia line. What we need is the South East line, the South Eastern services as well. One final question. I'm afraid we have to bring this to an end in few, a couple of minutes' time. Um, in the wake of uh, the recent deaths of quite a few cyclists, and yes, being sir. a cyclist yourself, um, I'm a cyclist. I ride every day uh, from um, my flat to Union back. Um, what are you actually going to change? Because the drivers, it states in the highway code, rule 163. Um, you can check if you wish. But it says that uh, cars should give vulnerable road users the same space as another car. Yeah, and they don't respect that. Don't. Cyclists don't respect, or some don't, that they shouldn't go through red lights. They shouldn't ride on the pavement. The <clears> Boris <throat> bike, uh, people who use Boris bikes often don't have helmets. What are you going to do to improve safety? Okay, right. We're doing about, uh, about four different things. And the first is education. Uh, we have a, a, because it's, it's true, it's been a massive expansion of cycling in London, hasn't there? It's gone up, it's gone up about 150%, by 175%, something like that. Huge, huge, huge expansion in cycling. And a lot of people say, well, what are you doing to teach those cyclists how to do it? Well, we are teaching them. If you, are you, does anybody want to cycle but doesn't at the moment? We can coach you. We can help you. We have TFL. We have, we have people who are willing to show you how to be safe in the London traffic. We've already helped, I think, about uh, 7,000 adults. We've uh, shown about 38,000 kids how to, to ride a bike. We have schemes to help people and to educate them. Number two, you've got to, you've got to have better safety features on the most dangerous vehicles, particularly the HGV. So you've got to have the, 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 the mirrors, you've got to have the Fresnel uh, lenses on the mirrors, you've got to have the uh, visible and, or, and audible uh, signs indicating that, uh, where, which way the vehicle is, is, is going. Uh, you've got to have uh, the sidebars on the, on the HGV to stop people being dragged under, because that's how you've seen some of the most terrible injuries. Uh, you've got to have all sorts of things that make uh, vehicles. And indeed, we're going forward with a safer lorry zone in London, uh, like uh, the congestion charge zone, where, where no vehicle that disobeys our safety provisions will be allowed to enter. Uh, number three, you need to have enforcement. Getting to your point about cyclists jumping lights, in the last uh, few weeks we have uh, stopped, fined, I'm, I'm delighted to say, uh, 752 cyclists for jumping the lights. I, we, I haven't personally, but the police have. Uh, and in case you think I'm picking on cyclists, we've also stopped and fined 1,392 motorists, uh, mainly for talking on their mobiles or for jumping the lights. So you've got to enforce the rules of the road. And the fourth thing you've got to do is you've got to invest in our transport infrastructure and make London beautiful to cycle in. And this city should be as pleasant, as lovely to cycle in as Amsterdam or as Copenhagen and that is the ambition and we're putting the thick end of about a billion pounds into junctions, into roundabouts, into cycle superhighways to encourage people to cycle and, they, and I hope that they will. 
I hope that they will. We are not giving up. We are not turning back. We're going to continue to invest in cycling. We're going to continue to encourage the take-up of cycling. And let me just remind you that in spite of the recent tragic spate of accidents, it is the case that in the last five years, there were fewer cyclists killed on London's roads than there were in the five years before that, even though there has been a huge increase in cycling and uh, the number of, I think, people killed or seriously injured in in the last uh, 10 years or so has come down by about a quarter. So, uh, and and that again uh, is in spite of the very considerable increase in uh, in the number of cyclists. Now, that is a tribute to the efforts of the police, of everybody who's trying to improve the roads, but it can only happen if cyclists are uh, if cyclists are responsible. Uh, I would urge everybody to get on their bikes, as I shortly will, if I ever get to the end of answering uh, this question. And, 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 and enjoy yourselves. London is made for cycling. It's made for cycling. It's beautiful. It's huge and flat with loads of parks and bosky nooks. Uh, the one place you will not be able to cycle, I am afraid to inform you, is the Garden Bridge, where, where, uh, which, will be, which will be strictly for, for meditation and, and contemplation without being intimidated by people on bicycles. In fact, I'm not even sure that we're going to allow dogs. In fact, I might tell, can I ask Peter, can I ask this distinguished audience what their views are on whether we should have dogs on the Garden Bridge? Well, 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 no, 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 This is just democracy. The LSE stands for democracy. Can I have a show of hands, please? All those in favour of allowing man's best friend, the dog, on the garden bridge. Okay. And all those against? What's your view? I'm afraid no. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Well, that may be that may be a guide to policy for which I'm most grateful. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Boris. Well, fir- first of all, let me make three comments. We've been privileged to hear a first-class raconteur as well as a person who is really both entertained and informed. And we're all very grateful to you, Boris, for being with My us and um, spending a lot of time in LSE in a very busy schedule. Two other points. Uh, First of all, I'd ask everybody to remain seated until uh, the mayor leaves uh, the room. And thirdly, um, and this is both good news and bad news, uh, as we've scaled up to a much larger venue than would normally be the case, the drinks reception, which will take place afterwards, is only open to LSE staff and students. Um, uh, But but the rest rest are... Well, you're very welcome. Um, and that is in the atrium of the Student Services Centre in the, in, in, in the old building. But I would ask you now to show your appreciation of our guests in the customary way. Thank you.